A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It happened in less than a minute. Five people were stabbed in the biggest mass killing in Calgary's history. Lawrence Hong, Katie Paris, Jordan Segura, Josh Hunter, and Zachariah Rathwell were all young and talented, and they had promising futures. What started out as a party to mark the end of classes at the University of Calgary ended in a horrific tragedy. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. If you're just joining me for the first time, go back to the previous episode to hear the first part of this series. This is part two of the Brentwood Five Massacre. On April 15th, 2014, Rebecca Donaldson was working as an operator at the Calgary 911 call center. By 1 a.m., she was already seven hours into her night shift. A few minutes later, her phone rang. This is the first time she's ever spoken publicly about that call. The call that changed her life. I just answered Calgary Police, what's the address of the emergency? And um, on the other end, there was a female and she actually seemed very calm and told me she needed police and I was hearing a lot of people yelling in the background, get help here, and I was hearing people crying and I was getting her to explain what happened and she didn't know very much because she just got there and saw all of her friends, I'm assuming they're her friends, gasping for air and it was Unbelievable. It felt like a 20-minute conversation, but it was only a couple minutes and police were there immediately. It was so, so good to hear they were, they arrived because sometimes they can be busy on the other end of the city and it can take longer. Later that morning, Rebecca went home and started four days off. I just kept replaying what had happened when I was sitting there listening to her asking for help. It took her years to build up the courage to ask for help, and she was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. I still can't forget it. It will never leave my mind, ever. I think about it all the time. I just felt seeing or listening to the first podcast that I needed to reach out because... I think about it every day and I didn't want, I just wanted all the families to know I think about them every day. I wanted the caller to know I think about her every day. I just, I just wanted, I wanted to say that. Several hours after those 911 calls and well after their five children had passed away, each of the families were given the devastating news. But Lorenzo and Marlene Hong already sensed something was wrong. He always will communicate with us. So that night, Lorenzo says, oh, he didn't call, he didn't text. And I said, oh, well, it's his last day at his class, right? So let him enjoy because he's graduating. So we didn't panic. Call it a parent's intuition. Lorenzo just knew something wasn't right. Lorenzo keep on saying, like, it's weird, he's not texting. He's, he's not, not calling. Yeah, the and phone. yes, Lorenzo called and he's not answering. So Lorenzo said, it's weird. But then the thing is, we don't know where he is. We don't know where he is. Normally, if we knew where he is, probably we could, we, we were there right Right we could come, uh, yeah. come by and knock on, knock on the door and pick him up, right? But yeah. we have no idea where he was. So mm-hmm. that's uh, a difficult thing for us. So the worry was that he's not answering the phone. 
He's not texting back. It, it just hanging up in the air. Lorenzo couldn't sleep. He kept watching his phone, waiting for word from Lawrence. The next morning, there was a knock on the door. They peeked out, but didn't recognize the people, so they didn't answer. But then must the be, knock was some, uh, was getting st- like getting harder and harder. So we said, okay, this is not it's right. It's almost breaking down yeah, the door. So, like it's very hard, right? So I said, this is not right. Then all of a sudden, uh, somebody called my cell saying, Marlene, somebody's knocking your door. I said, yes, you have to open, something like that. So I we opened. The police officers were not in uniform. The officers asked the Hongs to sit down and turn off their TV. I have no idea what he's going to say. And I don't know what he said. He showed us a picture. Yes, if if that's Lawrence's clothes. clothes. And I said, yes. And I said, then... Where's Lawrence? And then they said, oh, he's into... Uh, there was an uh, incident. The, yeah, there's an incident. So I said, is he in trouble? Did he did something wrong? And he says, no, it's the other way around. Lorenzo knew what the officers were trying to say. He hugged his wife and told her. And Lorenzo said, he's already dead, mom. He's not. I said, why? What happened? Like... My Lawrence, he's a good boy. In that moment, their lives were shattered. All the dreams they had for their son's future were stolen. Across town, at Greg Paris's home, April 15th started like any other day. His wife, Cam Laraway, woke up and turned on her TV. All it said was five people were killed at a house party. And I remember thinking, oh, that's terrible. What a horrible thing, right? And then I got my daughter ready. She, um, I had to walk her across the street to take the school bus. So she was eight, she was in grade three. And we had the new puppy. So I had the dog, up, you know, in a leash, had the, my daughter by the hand, and then this car pulled up and I went, Oh, there's always people parked in front of my house to go to the school and it's like who are these people and I knew when they got out that they were not parents from the school that it was two plainclothes policemen and uh, I opened the door because we were just coming out and so we were outside and he looks at me and he goes Shannon and I went no and then he looked kind of confused they looked at each other And I went, well, that's my husband's ex-wife's name. Who are you looking for? So I don't know exactly what they said. You know, they said his name and, or they asked me what my husband's name was. So I told them and they looked at my daughter because she's eight and I could tell they didn't want to say anything in front of her. So um, they said, we'd like to have a word. And I said, well, can I just walk my daughter across the street? And, which I did with the dog. And I remember thinking something's really wrong here. Normally I walked her right to the bus stop, but today, that day I just said, can you get to the bus stop by yourself? There was other kids. I said, I have to go back home. And I remember her going, mommy, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. Well, well you know, just go take the bus. So I come back and I walk in the foyer and it was, just kind of, I remember the one officer saying, the old typical, we regret to inform you. And that's all I heard. And then Katie, Caitlin Paris, and then homicide. And I'm like, what? No. And then they said she was at a party. And I'm like, oh no, they have the wrong house. She doesn't go to parties. Katie was not, she didn't do that. And we hadn't heard about this, right? So. I'm like, I remember thinking, oh, this, they have the wrong family. That's really sad. And then he kind of told me, he could see the look on my face. And he goes, no, she wasn't doing anything wrong. None of them were doing anything wrong. They were just enjoying themselves. So 
I don't really remember much after that. I just, they said to me, can you get your husband here? Can you phone him? Get him here, but don't tell him what we told you. Cam said she had to take a few minutes to try and calm down, and then made the call and told Katie's dad that police were at the house and needed to talk to him. She said, fortunately, Greg didn't ask many questions and agreed to come home. I'm at work. It's, eight, it's about 8 o'clock. I've been at work for about an hour. Well, I just ran downstairs, got in my car, started driving. When I pulled onto our street, I saw it was, wasn't a police car, it was an unmarked car. And I parked across the street, which I never do, and I didn't want to get out of the car because I knew if it's an unmarked car, this is really bad. I, I just started feeling dread right away. And of course, I opened the door and there's these two guys. I think they had suits on, I don't yeah, know. They and, I, and they started doing the same thing. And all I heard was homicide and party. And I didn't know she was at a party. And then they finally said her name and I just fell. In, I just took a couple steps and fell on the floor. I, was, I didn't pass out, I just couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. And I couldn't figure this out because she didn't go to parties. No. And it was, was a Monday. Really hard. Yeah. It was a Monday. I'm going, this this is no. And then they said there's four more. And then I'm like, what? Like what? Like now you're like, how how do five people get killed? And then they're like, I think they're trying not to tell us. And yeah, it's like a knife. Tell us and I'm like, people don't die that often from knife wounds. How do five people get killed getting knifed? Yeah. Like, your brain just goes on these weird... And then they want me to get Shannon there. And they want me to get Josh there without telling them because they, they don't want them driving knowing that their yeah, sister and their daughter's sad. dead. Yeah. Like, that's why they're doing that. So I had to phone Shannon. And I told her, you have to come to the house. I need you to come here. And she wouldn't let it go. She wanted to know. She said Josh first. Did something happen to Josh? Because he was having some anxiety issues and trouble. And, and I said, no. And then she right away went to Katie. And I said, yeah, it's Katie, you need to come. So I didn't tell her that she was dead. So then I phoned Josh and they both met out on the front step and Shannon started running away. Yeah. When I came, when I came to the door, she ran away. She ran so I had to chase her down the street in my sock feet and grab her. As Josh pulled up, I grabbed them both and I just said, Katie's gone. Well, I was driving to work yeah, that morning on April 15th and I heard it on the radio. I didn't, they didn't say names, but as soon as I heard it on the radio, I knew it was Katie. I have no idea how I knew. I just knew. I can tell you exactly where I was on the Deerfoot driving to work, <laughs> everything. So I managed to get to work. And then I told myself, you know, I was being crazy, that I would just wait till 8.30 because Katie would be mad if I woke her up. Um, so I got to my desk and I just sat there. I didn't, didn't work, I didn't do anything. And 8.30 never came, because at 8.21 is when Greg called me. And as soon as I saw that it was him, I. I just knew that what I thought or felt was true. And he wouldn't tell me on the phone, but I knew. Honestly, I can't think of anything that's the same. I truly, like, truly believe I died that day. Who I was, um, what my life was, what, how my family was, there's nothing the same. Patty Segura wasn't concerned about her son Jordan throwing a party. It was a small get-together with a great group of kids. The next morning, um, these two plainclothes police officers got out of this plain car that was parked in front of my house. And they asked me my name. Or no, they asked me, they said, they said my legal name. I have a, 
other name that I, it's not Patty. I have a full name, full legal name. They asked me that and right away the panic went up and I started to shake and they told me to sit down and I yelled out for Julian to come because he was getting ready for work. So we sat down in the kitchen and the police officer looked right at me and he said, Jordan passed away last night. So I, I don't remember much after that. I remember looking to my right to Julian and saying, call daddy. And he, then Julian called a couple of other people after he called his dad. So I kept saying to the police officer, like, what? I was just shocked. Like, what? I was just shocked. And they, there were two police officers. They said, we're sorry for your loss. They only stayed for about 10 minutes and they left. And I said, I told them about the other roommates because they told me that other people were killed. And I assumed it was the other roommates just because they lived there. And I said, I want to know the name of the person that did this. And he said, it's all over TV. And I said, I need to know the name of the person. And he said he would call me and give me the correct spelling of the name of the person that did this. So they left. Julian called a friend, Mary Lynn, and she came over and she said, sat down at the kitchen table and I just stayed there for the whole day. And I can, went crying to stop crying and I'd look at Mary Lynn and I'd, I said, what am I supposed to do? And she didn't know what to say and then I'd cry and then I'd stop crying and I'd ask Mary Lynn some more, what am I supposed to do? Shortly after the police left, that police officer did call me and he spelt out the name and I wrote it down on a piece of paper and my hand was shaking. It meant nothing to me. I don't know anybody with this name. It wasn't anybody Jordan ever mentioned. It's a complete stranger to us. Patty turned on the news to learn more about what happened to her son. Nobody would tell me anything. Anybody that came to the house, nobody would tell me what happened to Jordan. I knew he passed away, but I didn't know how. So how did you find that out? I went upstairs and went on my phone and I heard the chief of police explaining it in probably a press conference or something, I don't know. That's the only way I knew how Jordan died. So I, 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 I still didn't know, of course, the details of how the night went and how this happened. So I kind of made up the story in my head that they kicked somebody out of the party and that person got mad and came back and stabbed them. That's the story I had in my head. Josh Hunter's father went out of town on business right after an electric night celebrating the EP release for Zachariah and the Prophets. I went out of town the next day on a business trip to Vancouver, and um, then I got, I was up really early for some reason looking at the news, and I saw this news flash about this thing that had happened, and I did, had no idea. And I'm going, oh, that's, that's horrific. I, you know, I can't even imagine. Well, I was up because my mom and my brother were in town for the CD release and they were leaving that morning and they were planning on being out of the house at seven. So I was up and the phone rang. It was just, just before seven. They were like almost ready to leave. And the police called and said, we need to come and talk to you. And I tried to get them to tell me what, you know, just tell me what's wrong, is he okay? Tell me if he's okay, tell me is he in jail? I'll go get him, <laughs> just tell me something, give me an idea. And they wouldn't tell me anything. They just said, you'll have to, I said, it's gonna take you an hour to get here. You have to tell me something. And then the phone rings literally within seconds and it's Kelly and she's saying, I can't get a hold of Josh. And, um, and I tried phoning him and I couldn't get a hold of him. And then Kelly said that the police are on their way out, out and they won't tell me what's going on. And I, my, my heart just dropped. Um, and I'm in a hotel room in Vancouver, supposed to be going to for business meetings. And um, 
It's the so. worst sound ever. He was on the other end of the phone and all I heard him say was, no. What happened next is all a blur for Barkley Hunter. He got in a cab and headed for the airport. And that's when Kelly called to confirm Josh was in fact one of the victims. I don't even know how I got home. I got to the airport, uh, WestJet. Um, I just, I didn't know what else to say other than, you know, I need to get a flight. My son's been murdered. Can, and they just kind of were shocked and looked at me. and. And then within minutes, I was being whisked through security and they had a flight. They put me on the front of the plane, you know, just with nobody around me and just got me home. Rhonda Lee Rathwell wasn't worried when her son didn't come home after the party in Brentwood. She knew he was there and that he was planning on staying over. Well, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned that he didn't come home because... I knew he wasn't planning on coming home. Um, and then I went to work, and um, one of the girls at work said, uh, uh, wow, um, did you hear about the stabbings? And I was like, no. And she said, well, yeah, it was a year-end party at um, the, the UFC. And I was like, oh, wow. And I wasn't, I wasn't concerned, I guess I wasn't, worried um it zach was you know at, at his friend's place it, it never dawned on me that that was the party he was at and then she got a call from one of zach's best friends and bandmate barry called me and he said have you talked to zach and i said no why and he said because we can't get a hold of him and I was like, Barry, you need to tell me exactly what you're trying to tell me. Like, tell me what, what's happening. And he said, we were at that party last night and Josh is one of the people who was killed. <sighs> and then from there, it's all just kind of a blur. I kept trying to call Zach's phone. And in fact, I phoned the police. I phoned them and said, this is my name, and I was just told that my son was at that party. And then they called me back. It was hours before Rhonda Lee got that call. Police worked as fast as they could, but they had to be certain of each identity before they could notify each of the five victims' families. They had his, they had his driver's license. They had, that's what they showed me. When they finally got there, they showed me a picture of his driver's license and said, is this your son? And I said, yeah. At that same time, police were also working around the clock to piece together what led to this massacre. You know, we deal with uh, homicides of all nature and this one, I'll never forget. I mean, these kids were, good kids and they were young and they were in university and they were they had the whole lives ahead of them and you know they were um, they were good kids the investigation was led by Calgary police homicide detective Matt Damarino well, just the magnitude of, you know, the amount of victims. Um, we had a tremendous amount of witnesses to deal with. Um, we had a, a lot of follow-up in terms of um, following the bouncing ball backwards, as we do in any homicide, uh, in terms of retracing the steps of various people that are, that are involved, what they were doing before and, of course, after the incident happens. And so, in this case, we just had dozens and dozens of officers helping. Um, we had obviously, you know, the majority of the homicide unit. We had, um, you know, cold case helping us. We had uh, missing persons helping us. The entire domestic conflict unit came over. Given that we have someone in custody, of course, we have to make sure we have the right person in custody and we have to collect the evidence properly in order to, to prove that. Um, so in this case, you know, we all piled into the boardroom. I started doling out tasks. Uh, I was sending investigators here, there, and everywhere uh, to do things like uh, interviews, um, you know, search warrants, vehicles, following up 
leads, surveillance video uh, that our forensic crime scenes unit uh, dispatched a tremendous amount of officers to process that scene. By then, investigators were getting a clearer picture of who the suspect was in this case. The young man who we referred to as Matt in the previous episode is Matthew DeGrude. To add to the complexity of this case, police quickly learned he was the son of one of their own. Matthew DeGrude was the 22-year-old son of a veteran high-ranking officer with the Calgary Police Service, and he was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. Two days after the mass killing, Inspector Doug DeGrude, with his wife by his side, addressed the media about his son. Good afternoon, and thank you all for coming. I am Douglas DeGrude, and I am an inspector with the Calgary Police Service. He was standing on the front steps of his son's defense lawyer's office. I'm here today not as a police officer, but as a parent and a husband. I speak for my wife, Susan DeGrude, as we are one voice. At this point, Doug DeGrude's voice began to shake. I was standing just a few feet away from him, and I could see the pain in his eyes as he tried to get out the words he had prepared. We are shocked and devastated. And we are trying to make sense of what happened. We are deeply saddened for what the families and friends of the victims are going through. Your lives have been turned upside down. We know words cannot begin to ease your pain and suffering. Please accept our deepest condolences and know you are in our hearts, our thoughts, and our prayers. Our condolences also go out to the first responders who attended the scene. You had to detach from your emotions to do your job. Your professionalism was exceptional. Like any parent can tell you, a love for your child is unconditional. And we love Matthew dearly. Our Matthew is a great kid, full of love, kindness, and respect for others. Growing up, he received good grades in school and was active in a variety of sports. As a young adult, he got a part-time job, entered university, and became more involved in the community. He raised funds for charities through his passion for running. He had a bright future ahead of him. DeGroote spoke about his family's struggle to comprehend what had happened, what his son had done. Matthew was a smart young man. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science with distinction. He majored in psychology with a minor in law and society. DeGroote said his son was just months away from starting law school at the University of Calgary. Just like you, we struggle to understand what happened. We hope someday we will have answers as to why this happened. Regardless, it won't bring the victims back. But we would give anything to do just that. Our final words are to you, the media. We ask that you respect our family's privacy as we deal with this tragedy. At that point, Doug and Susan DeGrude went inside the law office while their son's lawyer agreed to answer questions from us, the media. And was there any history of mental instability on the part of Matthew? I am not aware of any whatsoever. Alan Fay did confirm Matthew DeGrude was being held at SAFPIC, the Southern Alberta Forensic Psychiatry Center. He appeared distraught, he appeared uh, upset, he appeared fearful, all those things that one would expect under those circumstances. On Friday, April 18th, 2014, three days after their children were killed, the families of the five victims were brought together as a group for the very first time. Calgary police arranged for a special meeting. It was the first of many that would follow. I will never forget 
the amount of pain by all, all five of those families in those, in that room when we would do these meetings. I mean, it's just like nothing I've ever experienced before. Um, I've dealt with a lot of families of victims of homicide and other tragic um, things, but just to have that multiplied by five and just the nature of these young people who, you know, had their whole lives ahead of them and were in school and doing well and young and fit and, you know, um, I'll, I'll never forget that. The kids die on Tuesday morning early and on Friday we're at the police station meeting all the other families. And I can tell you right now, I could tell who the parents were just by looking at people's eyes. Like there was a lot of people there, but I, I just walked up to the first, I walked up to Zach's dad because I knew he was a dad. Just looking in his eye, I knew what was in here and I had to hug him and he was Zach's dad. And it was just lined, the whole room was lined with police officers or people that worked for the police department. And people were asking questions. I don't remember any of the questions, but I remember breaking down at the table and crying, just saying, I just want Jordan back. And one of the other family, I think it was Katie's sister, came up to me. And she just consoled me and patted me on the back and gave me more Kleenex. I just having, kept having these moments where I was just breaking down crying and all I want was Jordan back. I don't care about anything else. You know that there's people that understand you and you don't really have to say words or you don't have to explain yourself because they just get it, they just understand. You're going through your own emotion and your own terror and then you have to hear everybody else going through the same thing. It's very, it, 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 it compounds it. it. It's, you know, the anguish uh, that, that everybody's going through and of course you have to have, you know, you're there and, and, and you do it, but it's not, a, it's not an easy thing um, to, to see not only ourselves go through this but other families as well it's just uh, it's unimaginable in the course of three days five funerals were held to honor and remember lawrence katie jordan josh and zach because they were killed at a house party in the calgary neighborhood of brentwood they became affectionately known as the Brentwood Five. The entire city grieved along with their families, and two weeks after they were killed, a public memorial was held at the University of Calgary. Each family shared special memories of their loved ones. That day, Lawrence would have turned 28. His brother Miles spoke on behalf of the Hong family. So the last time I spoke to my brother, he comforted me on my birthday by talking about the future. Today, on his birthday, I can't comfort him. I can't talk to him about his future. I, instead, I have to talk about his past. And it's sad that that is what I am forced to do. But looking back on his life, it's not a sad one. Happy birthday, Lawrence. We'll miss you. Patty Segura's eyes were red and filled with tears as she spoke about her son, Jordan. Standing here in front of all of you takes a lot of courage, but I can hear Jordan say, you can do it, Mom. Patty shared a story about one of Jordan's biggest adventures, a trip to New Zealand. Because Jordan was on his own most of the time, he would put the camera on a rock or a fence, set the timer, and then run away from the camera as fast as he could to get to the best spot for the picture. Many of these pictures are exactly of that, Jordan running away from the camera. <laughs> With her brother by her side, Nikki Paris spoke about their sister, Katie. Katie and I shared a very special bond, as most sisters do. 
Uh, she was my person, and I was hers. We spoke almost every day, and we never seemed to run out of things to talk about. Our conversations went on forever. Memories of Katie were shared on the big screen at the front of the room, including, of course, beautiful images of her dancing. That, I think, is the best thing she ever taught me. Never stop trying to live your passion and don't be afraid to share it. Do what you love and involve those who you love. We may have lost our sister, but we know that whenever we follow our own spirits and we live our passions, that she'll be right there with us. Two of Josh's closest friends spoke on behalf of the Hunter family, including his bandmate, Kyle. The band is over now because we lost half of our family. And I cannot express, express how much that hurts. Some people have been saying, I can't imagine how you're feeling. And that's true. But I can't imagine the pain and loss each and every one of you are feeling. It's different for everyone. <laughs> These were five extraordinary people, which I'm reiterating from everybody. <laughs> and to see all of you here today is proof of that. So for my family's sake, the family that consisted of Joshua Hunter, Zachariah Rathwell, Barry Mason and myself, just keep on dancing and keep on carrying on. Much love. And finally, Rhonda Lee Rathwell shared memories of her son, Zach. He surrounded himself with wonderful people. And I know that in the few hours before he died, he was surrounded by friends and they were having fun. And I'm so sad that they're all gone now, but I'm so happy and so grateful and so thankful that we had them in our lives at all. It was only 21 years, but thank you, Zach. Thank you. I love you. But there would be little time to grieve. The court process was already underway. You're watching Global News. After a 30-day mental health evaluation, a forensic psychiatrist has determined Matthew DeGrude is fit to stand trial. That means doctors have found the 22-year-old is able to understand the court process and direct his defense counsel. However, court heard DeGrude still has mental health issues and will require further psychiatric care. He's been sent back to the Southern Alberta Forensic Psychiatry Centre for an indetermined amount of time. You have to keep in mind that being fit to stand trial only means that he understands the process and he can instruct counsel. You can still be um, very profoundly mentally ill and be fit to stand trial. Two months later, another update. DeGroote appeared in court for the first time, and he was sent for further psychiatric testing to determine if he should be found not criminally responsible, or NCR. There were still so many unanswered questions, and details of the police investigation and psych reports were under a publication ban. Both the prosecution and defense argued the ban was necessary to protect DeGroote's right to a fair trial. On May 16, 2016, just over two years after, Lawrence Hong, Katie Paris, Jordan Segura, Josh Hunter, and Zachariah Rathwell were killed, the trial began with Matthew DeGroote's arraignment. Matthew DeGroote has pleaded not guilty to five counts of first-degree murder, but he admits he stabbed and killed the five young people April 15, 2014, at a house party in Brentwood. The issue is his mental state at the time. In order to be convicted of first-degree murder, it would be necessary that there be proof that my client not only did the act which resulted in the death of the victims, but that he had the necessary um, mental element present. Um, so in a, in a case, yes, one can be found to have done the physical act without possessing the necessary mental element. I should point out, this trial was different from the norm. For one, the room was so packed 
reporters were given special permission to sit in the jury box, which was a first for me in my career as a crime reporter. Then, instead of the trial proceeding with an opening statement from the prosecution, a lengthy agreed statement of facts was read. This is exactly what it sounds like. Details of the case that are agreed upon by both the Crown and the defense are put before the court. It was the first time details of the case were made public. These are those facts. In 2014, Matthew DeGrood was living with his parents and his older sister. He had been accepted into law school and was planning to begin classes in the fall. In the meantime, he was working in the produce department at a local grocery store, a job he had for several years. For the most part, he was known as a good kid. He had no history with police, no criminal record. DeGrood did have some struggles with substance abuse, including cocaine and ecstasy, a few years earlier, when he was in grade 11. But he went to treatment and he appeared to remain clean. His parents kept a close watch on his bank accounts for any signs of a relapse. He had no reported history of mental illness. But in the spring of 2014, his family noticed there was something different, a significant change in his personality. Out of nowhere, he took an interest in politics and religion, which was out of character. He was also more active on social media. He went from taking a year-long break from Facebook to posting up to 20 status updates a day. It wasn't just the frequency of the posts that caused his family concern, but also what he was posting. He shared lyrics from heavy metal songs like, the world needs a hero, along with quotes from the Bible and conspiracy theories the posts included scattered and erratic thoughts. Then, he became distant. He spent a lot of time alone in his bedroom. He would join his family for dinner and then go back to his room and back online. They noticed he was much more serious, not his normal joking self, and he wasn't open to criticism. Given the changes in his behavior, DeGroote's parents wondered if he had once again turned to drugs. Even his friends and co-workers noticed the changes. DeGroote would send them long, rambling texts, and he seemed paranoid. The family became so concerned that his dad, a high-ranking police officer himself, considered trying to get his son committed to hospital under the Mental Health Act. But given his son appeared lucid, he felt it was unlikely a doctor would hold him. On April 14, 2014, one of DeGrood's childhood friends, Brendan, sent him a text inviting him to a party that he and his roommates were throwing at their house. Brendan knew DeGrood since kindergarten and often invited him to parties, even though he hadn't accepted an invitation in at least a year, DeGrood had become a bit reclusive. This time, he accepted. What seemed even more strange is he also asked if he could stay over for a day or two. That day, DeGrood updated his Facebook status to read, Dread and the Fugitive Mind, The World Needs a Hero, names of songs by a heavy metal band. All of Matthew DeGrood's other Facebook posts were deleted that same day and weren't able to be recovered by investigators. It was never revealed in court who deleted those posts. Friends recalled seeing posts about conspiracy theories, reincarnation, and a photo of Darth Vader dressed up as a priest. An examination of his internet searches in the two weeks leading up to that date revealed he was Googling the world wars, Hitler, and the Antichrist. On April 14th, DeGrood went to work. 
He was scheduled in the produce department from 2.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. He arrived on time, but something seemed off. He didn't say hi to his assistant manager, and she noted seeing some weird stuff on his Facebook page. That evening, he sent a series of seemingly random and bizarre messages to his parents, including Book of Revelations, Uranus and Leo and Metal Goat, Illuminati, and Mary doesn't have to die this time, Operation Mind Crime to American Soldier. Just before 8 p.m., the night of the party, DeGroote purchased a three-pack of garlic bulbs from the grocery store. A little while later, he purchased a bottle of garlic supplements. He also withdrew $500 cash from a bank machine at his work. At 8.30, he left, still wearing his work uniform, black pants with a tan-colored shirt with a black apron, black shoes, and a black rain jacket. It was more than an hour later before his supervisor noticed DeGroote was gone. He signed out without notifying anyone. He had never left a shift early before. She texted him and he responded, Trust that I never hurt anyone. All will be known. DeGroote left his vehicle at work and took transit to the community of Brentwood. Still wearing his work uniform, he got Brendan to meet him at a nearby gas station because he said he couldn't remember how to get to the house. It was then DeGroote handed Brendan a clove of garlic and told his friend he was going to need it for later. Brendan asked him if he was worried about vampires, and DeGroote said he was, and said they're real. His friend took the garlic and put it in his coat pocket. DeGroote also gave him a long knife with a white handle in a brown leather sheath. Brendan assumed his friend had used it for work and put it in his bedroom for safekeeping. It took the friend six minutes to walk to the party, enough time for DeGroote to talk about conspiracy theories and things that seemed nonsensical. Brendan felt his friend seemed agitated and was acting weird. When they arrived at the house, there were about 20 people there, and DeGroote continued his strange behavior. At one point, another longtime friend struck up a conversation with him that quickly turned dark. He spoke about vampires and said to kill a vampire, you have to stab it in the heart. He said that at midnight, it would be the end of days because of the blood moon or the lunar eclipse. This friend became so concerned about DeGroote, he decided to take him for a walk around the neighborhood. But the conversation didn't improve. DeGroote ate a clove of garlic and offered one to his friend. He told him it was to keep the vampires away and that it would keep him protected at the end of the world. He also noted DeGroote had a box cutter in his work uniform. The childhood friend said the overwhelming message DeGroote kept repeating was the world was going to end at midnight. He worried DeGroote might be considering harming himself, so he struck up a conversation about mental health and told him it was okay to acknowledge when you're not okay. DeGroote became angry with the topic, and his demeanor changed. When they got back to the house, DeGroote put on a pair of blue medical latex gloves and said they were to hide his fingerprints in case he had to kill somebody at the end of the world. When questioned about the gloves, he put his hands in his pockets, but he was seen washing his hands and drying them while still wearing the gloves. Before midnight, DeGroote and his childhood friend Brendan, along with some of the other partygoers, climbed onto the roof of the garage to talk. Again, 
De Groot started talking about the end of the world, that it would happen at midnight when the moon would turn red and the purification would occur. He confided in Brendan that his parents thought he was going insane and wanted to seek help and get him medication. I should add, according to the agreed statement of facts, De Groot also had some fairly normal conversations. He spoke to Zachariah Rathwell about his band and school and talked to others about work. There were no confrontations, no arguments, and despite De Groot's behavior, the mood of the party was still laid back and relaxed. In the meantime, his parents were growing more concerned. They were texting and calling to try to find out where he was. Finally, he sent his mom a series of messages that included, Trust me, it's reincarnation this time. I do the right thing for once instead of thinking only of myself. I'm okay, mom. I promise. I will never die and no one will die. You can't come here. You will die. At one point, he promised to come home. His parents worried he was suicidal. DeGrood was supposed to be at work. His mom contacted police and his dad went out looking for him. They had no idea he was at a party. It was at around 12.30, early on April 15, 2014, when Matthew DeGrood joined a group of people around a fire pit in the backyard. He put his cell phone on an axe blade and dropped it into the fire. Another partygoer reached in and pulled it out, but DeGrood grabbed it back, smashed it with the axe, and then threw it at a fence. He continued to ramble on about conspiracy theories. He said the moon had not turned red at midnight, so it was okay, but he was still getting ready for the apocalypse. Meanwhile, Doug DeGroote found his son's car parked at the grocery store he worked at, but there was no sign of his son. At 1.15 a.m., Doug DeGroote approached a patrol car near the store to tell officers he was looking for his son. They said they would circle the area to try and help find him. It was only minutes later those same officers learned of the fatal stabbings. Back at the house, a group of friends had gone to a nearby McDonald's to pick up food. Zach was in the kitchen talking to DeGrood when it all began. I don't think it was minutes at all. Um, I think it, was, it would be in seconds. And I think that um, the offender was having a conversation with one of the victims. Something that happened during the course of that conversation triggered the uh, offender to believe that, you know, this was the start of it. This was it. This was what, this was the end of the world. This was, you know, whatever it was that was happening in, in his head. And um, it was very, very quick uh, sequence and order in which those five kids were, were killed. Three separate calls were made to 911 between 1.21 a.m. and 1.23 a.m. Police arrived three minutes later at 1.26 to a violent and chaotic scene. DeGroot was arrested about a half hour after he stabbed the five victims. In the process, he got bit by a police service dog. He fought with officers, resisted arrest, and yelled at them, I didn't do it. I want to talk to my lawyer. When he was uh, arrested, the officers on scene, the uniformed officers, noted very quickly that he was speaking and not making a lot of sense, um, talking about, you know, things that just wouldn't seem normal. Um, and um, so they brought him to the hospital to address, you know, those needs. And um, I sent a homicide detective to the hospital to ensure that he was, you know, properly arrested and his, you know, uh, charter rights in Canada have been properly exercised. And um, during the course of that interview as well, that officer noted that, you know, he was talking nonsensical things about, you know, Darth Vader and, you know, various things like that. 
Our global news photographer was the only one to capture the exact moment when an injured and handcuffed DeGroot was wheeled into an ambulance on a stretcher. This was the only glimpse of DeGroot we would get until he made his first court appearance. While in the ambulance, police read Matthew DeGroote his charter rights, and he was formally charged with murder and attempted murder. He asked to speak with a lawyer. When he was told he wasn't obligated to say anything, but whatever he did say may be given in evidence, he responded with, I'm the son of God. Later in the ambulance, DeGroote made a number of unsolicited statements that the officer recorded in her notebook, including, I believe killing people in self-defense is just and fair. I tried to commit suicide in the dumpster I was in. I cut my wrists. I believe I am Jesus reincarnated. I'm not paranoid, schizo, or crazy. I believe we live in the new age. I believe Satan is the true God. What I did may seem atrocious, but I was killing medusas and werewolves. When he arrived at the hospital, DeGroote continued to make statements without being questioned. Those included, I've been sober for six years. I didn't enjoy killing at all. I said sorry, but the Son of God was controlling me. One of his statements referred to Zach, who was with him in the kitchen when he began his attack. He said, The taller guy who looked like a werewolf was going to kill. A knife block was there and I thought he was going to kill me first, so I did what I had to do. I don't feel bad for doing what I had to do because it's justice and I was being controlled. DeGroote went on and on. He said he wanted the cheapest, worst public defender and that he didn't care because he was guilty. He wanted police to note that he was giving a full confession. As he received medical attention, he kept talking for hours. He said, when I stabbed them, I tried to do it mercifully. I aimed for their heart. They put up a struggle, which made it hard. But just so you know, it wasn't sadistic or anything. Just before six in the morning, he asked police to clarify that he was charged with three counts of murder. The officer told him it was five, as far as she knew. I should warn you that what DeGroote said next is pretty graphic. He asked, will it still be a murder if I was defending myself? Because he was really bothering me. So what happened was, the big tall guy, we were talking about Buddhist philosophies, that we were all going to die, so just have fun, have sex, etc. He obviously disagreed with me and was towering over me, so I asked him to give me my space. We were walking towards the knife block, so I decided to shoot first because I didn't know what he was going to do, so I stabbed him. Then the people on the couch saw and they obviously started freaking out, so I killed them from left to right as quickly as I could. The girl ran into the corner, so I went and stabbed her. I said, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Then the guy from the kitchen wasn't dead, so I had to hunt him down. But then I just left. Both of DeGroote's hands were handcuffed to the hospital bed. The officer asked if he wanted to take one of them off. He said, I'd prefer if you cuff both hands because I realize what I was capable of and I don't want to have an opportunity to do that again. He said, I don't know about the guys, but I definitely regret killing the girl. I just want to say there is a difference between killing and murder. That day, a homicide detective spoke with DeGroote several times. Those conversations were recorded and transcripts were included in the agreed statement of facts, but the audio has never been made public. 
when DeGroote was reminded he was accused of five counts of first-degree murder. He told the detective he thought he was Darth Vader. He said he thought he was going to be killed, so he grabbed a knife and stabbed everyone in a frenzy. He said he believed they were vampires and medusas, adding, that is not, in my opinion, first-degree murder. He changed his mind about the type of lawyer he wanted. He requested to call a lawyer who specialized in mass murders. On the second day of the trial, there was another detour from the norm. You're watching Global News. One by one, each of the five victims of the Brentwood tragedy were honored in court Tuesday. It's an unusual move during a trial, but one the Crown, Defence and Justice all agreed was fitting. Family members took turns presenting tributes about their lost loved ones. Tears and even laughter flowed freely as loving memories were shared. Then, on the third day of proceedings, details of the psychiatric assessments were finally made public. Doctors who assessed DeGrude said he was clearly psychotic when he stabbed and killed Lawrence Hong, Josh Hunter, Katie Paris, Zachariah Rathwell, and Jordan Segura. DeGrude told doctors he believed he was the son of God and Hitler reincarnated in the weeks prior to the killings. Doctors testified the whole evening he was fearing that he was going to be killed. He heard the voice of the Son of God saying, kill them all before they kill you, and to him it marked the beginning of the war. Experts testified DeGrude believed the victims were all Illuminati, and he heard a male voice who he thought was the devil telling him to kill them before they get you. DeGrude was diagnosed with schizophrenia. The doctors testified DeGrude should not be held criminally responsible for the killings, one saying, my opinion is that he did not know what he was doing was morally wrong. The issue of whether DeGrude could be faking mental illness was discussed at length. Both experts testified they don't believe he's been faking. No matter what we do, there's going to be certain members of the public who, who aren't satisfied. But it is very important that the public know that uh, my client's not getting any special breaks because his father's a police officer. My client isn't trying to avail himself of some trumped-up defense. My client was mentally ill when this occurred to the point that he was incapable of appreciating the moral wrongness of what he was doing. DeGrid was sent to hospital in Edmonton for his assessments to avoid any perception of special treatment as his father is a police officer. He's been medicated to the point that he is no longer delusional. Thanks to the medications he's received and the treatment he's received, he now appreciates reality in what was happening. Defense also clarified all of the experts are brought in by Alberta Justice for an unbiased opinion and are not hired by defense. Determining what was real, or what could have been faked, was a major part of the police investigation in this case. I mean, a lot of people were concerned that, um, you know, the, the mental illness uh, aspect of this investigation, or this file or defense, if you will, uh, was fake. You know, it was just faking it, just trying to get out of it and all that kind of stuff. And so we... Um, did a tremendous amount of work with a variety of different experts um, to ensure that, um, that that wasn't the case. We do that by employing a variety of experts in that regard, um, from forensic psychiatrists to psychologists to the people that you know um, the offender dealt with while in custody, um, all of those things. Um, and then we have our own independent people who, who reviewed all of that as well. After hours of interviews and psychological testing, experts supported a finding of not criminally responsible. And on May 25th, 2016, the justice hearing this case agreed with those experts. Justice Eric Macklin has found Matthew DeGrude not criminally responsible for the murders of Lawrence Hong, Josh Hunter, Katie Paris, Zachariah Rathwell, and Jordan Segura. The finding of NCR means DeGrude was mentally ill at the time of the fatal stabbings and wasn't able to understand his actions were morally wrong. The expert witnesses have said that he's schizophrenic. Uh, we have to accept that, but all I do know is that there's no cure for schizophrenia. There's only controlling the impulses and the delusions with medication. The finding of NCR meant DeGrude would not go to prison. 
In a letter read in court by his lawyer, DeGroote acknowledged the immense suffering he's caused. He promised to take his medications and apologized repeatedly. I want to make amends for this. I'm not asking for your forgiveness, but I hope you are able to understand that I am truly sorry for what I've done and I will work to regain the trust of society. Matthew's father, Doug DeGroote, also spoke to reporters outside court following the finding of NCR. Everyone connected with this tragedy can never forget the overwhelming heartache and suffering from the families of the victims. As we move forward, we will continue to keep the victims and their families in our prayers and hope that time will eventually begin to heal their pain and suffering. The justice emphasized the law around an NCR ruling that ensures people who have mental disorders are treated, not punished. The court ruling officially ended Matthew DeGroote's dealings with the Canadian criminal justice system. His case moved into the healthcare system, and he was sent to a secure psychiatric facility. But for how long? Would there come a day when he would once again be free? That's the question the families of the five victims wanted an answer to. Our life sentence is to, uh, every year, go to the Mental Health Review Board and try to make sure that this dangerous offender never gets out and has a chance to hurt anyone else. There would be no closure for these families. That's what we'll look at next time on Crime Beat, in the conclusion of the Brentwood Five Massacre. Thank you so much for listening. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, please go back and take the time to check out the other stories I've shared. These are all such important cases. And please consider sharing Crime Beat with your friends. I would love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. If you have questions about one of the episodes, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.